We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 551 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, April 17th, 2023, and we this year will have a home playoff game for a football team of Washington, D.C., the XFL team of the nation's capital, the D.C. Defenders. Uh, they now are 8-1, a 28-26 overtime win over the Arlington Renegades. Oh, I despise those Arlington Renegades. Uh, the game at Audi Field on Sunday afternoon. The defenders clinching home field advantage in the 2023 XFL playoffs. Now, that is uh, a grander statement than probably uh, the reality warrants. Uh, the XFL playoffs only consist of three games, uh, two division championship games, and then a neutral site championship game. But still, a salute to the defenders who, by the way, won this game on Sunday afternoon despite blowing a 26-9 fourth quarter lead. Uh, but guess who had an interception for the defenders on Sunday afternoon? I love this. Former Redskin safety, DJ Swearinger. Yes, in case you didn't know, DJ Swearinger is on the defenders. So too is another former skin safety, Monte Nicholson. Quite the pair, DJ Swearinger and Monte Nicholson. Perhaps they are reforming the flight marshals uh, on the defenders. <laughs> and the defensive coordinator of the defenders is former skins assistant head coach in charge of defense, Greg Williams. Never forget that is Greg with three G's. G-R-E-G-G. Snoop Dogg is the D-O-double-G. Greg Williams is the G-R-E-double-G. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Had you like former wizard Rui Hachimura <laughs> on Sunday? Can you believe this? First round of the NBA playoffs. Game one, for the Los Angeles Lakers against the Memphis Grizzlies. The Lakers, a 128-112 win at the Grizzlies, and Rui off the bench for the Lakers. 29 points in 29 minutes, 48 seconds of playing time. He went 5 of 6 on threes, 6 of 8 on twos, and 2 of 2 on free throws. He also had 6 rebounds. His 29 points tied 
a Lakers record for most points in a playoff game as a reserve. Uh, This is the same Rui Hachimura for whom our Wizards got pennies on the dollar. Uh, This past January 23rd, the Wizards announced having traded Rui to the Lakers for Kendrick Nunn, a second-round pick in the 2023 NBA Draft, the less favorable of second-round picks of the Wizards and Lakers in the 2028 (laughs) NBA Draft, and the Lakers' second-round pick in the 2029 NBA Draft. Let me summarize that for you. The Wizards, this past January 23rd, traded Rui for pennies on the dollar. The Wizards took Rui with the number nine pick in the 2019 NBA Draft, and yet they ended up losing him via trade for three second-round picks and a player in Kendrick Nunn who missed all of last season due to a bone bruise in his right knee. Uh, Rui is set to be a restricted free agent this coming offseason, but still, pennies on the dollar, and there he was tearing it up for the Lakers on Sunday in a big playoff win. But hey, did you have a nice weekend? It is hard right now, if you're a Washington, D.C. area sports fan, not to be loving life. How was your first weekend in our new world as Washington, D.C. sports fans with Dan Snyder on his way out as commander's owner? Although things over the last few days did perhaps get a bit more complicated, Uh, There may be a new offer for the Commanders, an offer that far exceeds the offer of $6.05 billion from the Josh Harris Group. Uh, Then again, uh, this offer is coming from someone with an extremely checkered business past. Next segment, I will react to a report from WUSA 9 Sports Director Darren Haynes on Friday evening of former Duke basketball player and former NBA player Brian Davis having made a $7 billion cash offer to buy the Commanders. The question is, is this offer legit? Because it may well be that this offer is fraudulent because this guy, Brian Davis, may well be a total fraud, a total phony, okay? Again, checkered past. Uh, How about this tweet from former NFL edge defender and Maryland product, Sean Merriman. Sean Merriman on Sunday night tweeted the following regarding Brian Davis's $7 billion offer for the Commanders. Quote, BS, Brian Davis doesn't have the funds, tried to get me for $3 million, took his ass to court, and won $4 million. He owes a bunch of athletes money. The other owners will never approve this. End quote. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, Next segment, my thoughts on the Brian Davis offer. I also hit on the first public comments from head coach Rod Rivera since last Thursday afternoon's reports that Dan Snyder has agreed on a sale of the commanders to Josh Harris. And then I'm going to welcome on my good friend, Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. And we are going to spend a lot of time discussing something that we have long wanted to discuss together Dan Snyder selling the team. But the focus will be on what now and what's ahead as opposed to what has happened. Honestly, I would like to start moving away from all of the Danny talk as soon as possible. I'm sure that there will be developments that drag us back into talking Danny. But for now, let's focus on the new day that is arriving. So Kevin and I will get into a lot of big picture stuff 
with the sale of the team, including details from Kevin on what he actually believes the sale price to Josh Harris to be. Not exactly the $6.05 billion that we keep hearing about, but Kevin Sheehan on the show next segment. Also on the show, the rest of your Washington, D.C. area sports weekend, which, oh, by the way, included Peter Laviolette being out as Capitals head coach. Yeah, the Caps now are in the midst of a head coaching search. Uh, I will react to Laviolette being out as Caps head coach and take you through key and telling comments from Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan from a Caps Breakdown Day on Saturday. You will hear GMBM address not just Laviolette being out and the team's head coaching search, but also the seasons that were had by winger Alex Ovechkin and centers Evgeny Kuznetsov and Nicholas Backstrom. Some brutal honesty from GMBM on Kuznetsov and Backstrom. Uh, I will talk Nationals. Uh, they, over the weekend, lost two or three games to the Cleveland Guardians at Nationals Park, although the final game of the series was a wild and ultimately, to me, really good 7-6 Nats win on Sunday afternoon. Uh, the Nats in that game overcame a 6-3 seventh inning deficit. That, to me, was a 2019 Nationals-type victory. And I will get into the Orioles. Uh, They, over the weekend, won two or three games at the Chicago White Sox. As the Orioles' offense continues to be great, and the Orioles' starting pitching continues to be bad, and the O's continue to have crazy games. The O's in this series had two come-from-behind wins and a walk-off loss in 10 innings. Every game for the O's this regular season has been dramatic, or so it feels. Uh, You could tweet me. At Al Galdi, you can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Feedback off the agreement on a sale of the Commanders continues to pour in. Rejoicing off the agreement on a sale of the Commanders continues to pour in. Email from Sakani. Right, Sakani. Hello, Al. The sale of the Commanders was a great birthday present for me. How do you think that this affects Jason Wright and the coach-centric approach led by Rivera? I think it is too late to make any major changes. The podcast is great as always. Uh, Thank you for the email, Sakani, and happy birthday. Uh, Ron Rivera is safe as commander's head coach for this offseason. It would be stunning if the Josh Harris group uh, or (laughs) the Brian Davis group uh, bought the team and then fired Ron this deep into the offseason. I mean, The NFL draft is less than two weeks away. Heck, the Commander's offseason program is beginning on Monday, April 17th. So uh, Ron would appear to be safe for this offseason. But come the regular season, all bets are off. And if he has another one of his uh, patented Ron Rivera slow starts, I absolutely could see him uh, being fired during the 2023 season. Don't forget this. Denver Broncos head coach Sean Payton on February 10th revealed that potential commanders ownership groups had contacted him about possibly becoming the team's head coach. He said this on Mad Dog Sports Radio on Sirius XM. It may well be that one of those groups was the Josh Harris group. So if the Harris group contacted Sean Payton months ago about potentially replacing Ron Rivera, uh, then he absolutely is on a piping hot seat going into the 2023 season. As for the team president, Jason Wright, so to me, him being fired before the start of the 2023 season is in play. Uh, That obviously will depend on what new ownership thinks of Jason and how much it faults him specifically for uh, all of the screw-ups that have happened during his tenure 
as team president. But what also could happen is that new ownership keeps Jason for at least the 2023 season uh, to see like up close and personal how he is and how he does what he does. And then next offseason makes a true decision on him. A big part of the Jason Wright decision, too, will be if new ownership has a replacement in mind. Like if Josh Harris has someone who Harris very much wants running the team's business operations and that person is available now but might not be available, say, nine months from now, uh, then yeah, we could see Jason get fired uh, before the start of the 2023 season. Email from Jerry writes, Jerry, I would like to recant what I said in a previous email I sent you about the dragging on of the sale being a Dan Snyder tactic for delaying investigations and getting the owners off his back. It now is clear that the delay of the sale is all about Snyder's sole motivation in everything he does, the almighty dollar. Attempting to drive up an already ridiculously record-setting bid for an NFL franchise is so Dan Snyder. I can't believe I did not come to that conclusion much earlier. I was especially uplifted by your episode with Ambassador Gutman, in which you all discussed the imminent sale and the potential of the commanders being owned by the Josh Harris Group. Uh, The stories the ambassador shared about Mitchell Rails were very inspiring and gave hope to DC fans that what Snyder systematically destroyed during his tenure can be resurrected, an Easter reference for your time at Georgetown Prep. (laughs) I look forward to the episode in which you actually talk about the sale and future episodes in which you discuss how the new ownership will restore the legacy of the franchise and make it something that DC can be proud of again. Appreciate all you do to keep us all informed on DC sports. And thanks for providing a beacon of hope as we witness the end of the Danny Boy era. Let's begin planning the parade. Uh, Thank you for the email, Jerry. Yeah, Howard Gutman, former United States ambassador to Belgium, an outstanding appearance on this podcast on episode 547, a deep dive on DC area billionaire Mitchell Rails, a key part of the Josh Harris group. I'll say this about Dan Snyder, as annoying as these tactics to drive up the sale price of the team have been, and as transparent as these tactics to drive up the sale price of the team have become, him trying to get every last nickel for the team is within his rights. Like when you're selling a major asset, you trying to get all that you can for that asset, so long as you're not doing anything illegal, uh, is allowed. But yeah, the tactics now are obvious. I mean, Dan's camp clearly leaked things to the media to try to drive up the price of the team. Do you remember the Forbes report? Forbes, this past December 22nd, reported that Dan Snyder had received bids for the commanders that were, quote, well north, end quote, of $7 billion. And we at the time were like, wow, that's incredible. This team is going to go for a record price and then some. And the team still is going for a record price, but not for well north of $7 billion. At least we don't think, right, Brian Davis? (laughs) But yeah, that Forbes report clearly was fake news. Uh, Fox Business Network senior correspondent Charles Gasparino, who by his own admission uh, has received intel from Dan's camp. Gasparino in recent months putting out a number of tweets practically begging Amazon founder Jeff Bezos to get involved in the bidding on the team. I mean, these tactics were obvious. These tactics were transparent, but these tactics are allowed. So good for Danny for making a nice profit on the team, which he and 
1999 bought for $800 billion and now is selling for $6.05 billion. Dan's making a nice profit on the team. And hey, we're getting new ownership. And it is that that matters more than anything. Well, nothing matters more to you than your well-being and the well-being of your family and friends. But if you have been harmed or if someone who you care about has been harmed physically or financially by the negligence of someone else, always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is ready to fight for you. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611, and when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace treats its clients with respect and dignity and once what is best for the firm's clients, Paulson and Nace will treat you, your family, and your situation with the care and expertise that you deserve. Uh, Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. Heck, this past July, Paulson and Nace won a case for which the United States government must pay nearly $1.8 million. Paulson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. Well, a big help is if you subscribe to rate and review this podcast. Uh, You can subscribe to the podcast via most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, A subscription to the pod costs you nothing and make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two. Can't be more, but doesn't have to be. And uh, thank you for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. So since Dan Snyder bought the Redskins in May 1999, uh, pretty much nothing with the team has been simple or easy. So why should his sale of the team be any different? We last Thursday afternoon had the glorious development of multiple reports that Dan had agreed to sell the team to a group led by Josh Harris for $6.05 billion. But The reports did say that the agreement was not exclusive and was not signed, meaning that another bidder still could buy the commanders. Well, we then on Friday evening got a report from a friend of this podcast, WUSA 9 Sports Director Darren Haynes, who said that Brian Davis has made a $7 billion cash offer to buy the commanders. Brian Davis, former Duke basketball player, former NBA player, He's from the Washington, D.C. area. Davis went to Bladensburg High School in Bladensburg, Maryland. Uh, as you may recall, the sports junkies on 106.7 The Fan on March 27th reported that Brian Davis had put together a group to buy the commanders with an official offer, a cash offer of $7 billion. 
But we since then had heard nothing about Brian Davis buying the Commanders until this report from Darren Haynes on Friday evening. Uh, Haynes reported that Davis's offer to buy the Commanders was made on March 21st. Haynes reported that Davis has the $7 billion ready to go, that he is offering to pay the first billion dollars to Dan Snyder within 24 hours and then $6 billion within seven days. And Haynes reported that Davis is willing to indemnify Dan Snyder as a condition of Davis's offer, meaning that Davis is willing to take on any legal liability related to Dan and ongoing investigations. All of this sounds almost too good to be true for Danny Boy. Now, I'm not trying to knock Darren Haynes. Like I said, he's a friend of this podcast. He was on the podcast just a few weeks ago, episode 540, talking at length about the sale of the Commanders. But Brian Davis has a very sketchy history. Uh, Davis and former Duke teammate and former Wizards player, Kristen Leitner, uh, they, in the mid-1990s, formed Blue Devil Ventures, But the company uh, had a few problems (laughs) and faced multiple lawsuits, including, get this, Leitner himself suing the company. Yes, his own company for $10 million at one point. Also, how about this? A group led by Brian Davis and Kristen Leitner in October 2006 reached an agreement to buy 70% of the NBA's Memphis Grizzlies. But the group in January 2007 missed the deadline to produce sufficient funding, and thus the group's deal to buy the Grizzlies fell through. So yeah, Brian Davis claiming to have money, he ended up not having to buy a major pro sports team. That has happened before. There is a lot out there about Brian Davis's business dealings. Just do a Google search and uh, you'll find plenty of material. I don't know how legit his $7 billion offer for the commanders is. I do know this, the guy's business history is sketchy and shady. And just going off that, He, to me, comes off more as a con man uh, than he does as a contender to buy the commanders. But we shall see, okay? You never know. In the meantime, uh, we have the first public words from commanders head coach Ron Rivera since the news on Thursday afternoon that Dan Snyder has agreed to sell the team to a group led by Josh Harris for $6.05 billion. Uh, Ron spoke to USA Today Sports NFL columnist Jared Bell for a piece That came out on Friday afternoon, quote, it really seemed like a load was lifted because everybody was on pins and needles for the last couple of months. You kind of wondered what was going to happen. And quote, by the way, Ron Rivera and Commander's General Manager Martin Mayhew are expected to do a joint pre-NFL draft press conference this Thursday. Uh, The first round of the 2023 NFL draft is the following Thursday night, April 27th. Well, Regardless of who is buying the Commanders, and I do still believe that the who is Josh Harris, but regardless of who is buying the Commanders, the team is being sold. Of that, there is no more doubt. The dream is a reality. Dan Snyder is selling the team. Uh, A man with whom I, over the years, have had many conversations about the team, including its ownership, is the man who joins me now, Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast and the Kevin Sheehan Show on the Team 980. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin Sheehan DC. Kevin, I don't know the extent to which you imagined how you would feel if Dan Snyder sold the team, but now that an agreement for the sale of the team is in place, do you feel the euphoria that you perhaps had imagined that you would feel if this day ever came? 
No, and I've been talking a lot about this in recent weeks as we've built up to this, Al. I think you and I have talked about it, too, um, either on the air or off the air. I, I think we've been worn down by this story over five, you know, over the last five to six months, for, for one thing. And then secondly, and this is where it's going to become really interesting post-sale, is how much damage was really done. We can quantify things like attendance and local television numbers and revenue and all of that, but what kind of psychological damage was done? How many people really now versus five years ago are coming back just because Dan is gone? I don't know the answer to that. And I just know how I have felt in recent years and then really... um, it felt at times five, at least, with the name change in two two twenty two, which was just an embarrassing, you know, sort of rollout of all of this. And I, I've I've explained the way I felt for for a year and a half now. It just feels like the team that plays in Washington for me is an expansion team, and I guess there's a chance I would adopt the expansion team and I would become, you know, a big fan and become really excited about the expansion team, especially with Dan gone. But I don't know. I, I mean, it's an amazing situation because none of us would have ever predicted it you know a year ago two years ago five years ago and there was a time where all that mattered all that mattered is that dan went um but i think it's become more complicated than that in in recent years in the last two years in particular um so i i get it um it was it's cool and i look forward to you know the new ownership and how things change and talking about the team in a way in which, you know, they actually have a chance now to be a winner um, more than they did with Dan did. But I did find the buildup and the conclusion to this, which we're not actually at the conclusion yet. I just feel like it's a bit anticlimactic. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, To what degree will the ownership change improve the business of the team? Like, will the ownership change in and of itself lead to an increase in attendance at games at FedEx Field and lead to more sponsorship revenue for the team? Or do those things just come down to the team winning? No, I think initially there's going to be a bump for sure. I mean, you're going to see a bump in attendance. You're going to see a bump in corporate sponsorships. You're, you're going to see a bump in premium seating, which is so important to a football team because that's not shared ticket revenue. So club seats and suite sales, all of that stuff. But, you know, would they be able, like five years ago, you'd be able to fill up an 80,000 seat stadium day one with maybe a waiting list if Dan left. Now, what is it? Well, it's probably, you know, it's more than 58,000 or whatever it was last year. What was the attendance? 51, 52 average, whatever it was. Um, And, you know, it's going to be more. And I think corporately businesses in town will do business with the team again because they've kind of promised that they would do business with the team again if Dan left. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, the, the biggest obstacle for them, uh, out there in Ashburn and in Landover, uh, has been all about, you know, Dan, it's been the number one obstacle. So they're removing that. I think what I was speaking to more before is just everybody, I think would have come back with Dan gone five years ago, 10 years ago, three years ago. I think that that has changed a little bit. I think it'll be harder to reacquire the fans that were fans. 
Um, but a lot of them are coming back. Uh, the head coach of our commanders and what is a coach-centric approach, Ron Rivera, he would seem to be safe at least until the 2023 season gets going, only because we're already pretty deep into the offseason. But uh, what about the team president, Jason Wright? Do you think that we could see Jason get fired before the start of next season? First of all, I agree with you on the football side, although I don't know whether or not, you know, new ownership, if they have an idea on somebody who's going to run football operations um, and maybe take some of that away from Ron. I don't know that that's completely out of play. The coaching staff, the players, big, you know, roster moves, I think it's too late for that. As far as the business side and Jason Wright, you got to think that Josh Harris, who owns multiple sports franchises, has people close to him that he wants to put into this organization to run the business side. You know, a CFO, a head of sales, a head of, you know, this and that on the business side. And that, you know, unless they, I would imagine that Jason Wright has to be re-interviewed to, 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 to stay, that everybody on that side of the business would have to be, um, you know, essentially uh, pass the muster of new ownership uh, to stay. And look, I mean, it, part of their challenge has been Dan, and they can make the case that now that Dan's gone, well, look what we can do. And we've set up the operation to take advantage of the day that Dan you know, left, uh, and we've got better practices in place, and we have better people in place. But, you know, they've had their fair share of blunders on that side of the building as well, um, you know, over the last uh, two, two and a half years, whatever it's been now. So, I don't know, I, if, if, you're, if you're in any company that is acquired, and the acquiring company is in your business, or in this, you know, in this case, in the sports ownership business already, I would guess that you'd be concerned. Are there things specific to Josh Harris and or his group that excite you? Or is the excitement just about the fact that Josh Harris isn't Dan Snyder? Well, that's number one. I mean, I don't know that we've ever seen a new owner uh, that literally will have the honeymoon period, period, the grace period that Josh Harris will have. I mean, they don't really have to sell themselves at all. <laughs> they're already sold. The number one reason that they're accepted day one is because they're not him. You know, so that that's the biggest benefit of, of buying this franchise. Um, I think that one of the things that's going to be interesting is they've had to, to, you know, work to put this deal together. You know, $5.85 billion, which I believe to be the actual price, I think there's an earnout that could get Dan over, you know, to $6 billion or a tick over it based on maybe it has to do with the sports book at FedEx or some other things real estate related. Um, but, uh, you know, it took a lot to put together that kind of group that was capable of, of paying that number. So what happens with things like being able to buy and build a, a new stadium, um, buy land and build out a new stadium? Will, will that effort be, um, will be, will it be impacted because they spent every last cent on the team? I don't think so because he could easily divest in any, you know, any of his two North American franchises, the devils 
or the Sixers. I mean, he paid two hundred and eighty million, I think it was, for the Sixers, and the Suns just sold for four billion dollars. So he could sell, you know, a big stake in the seventy Sixers to, you know, help uh, fund the stadium. He's got big partners already. I mean, I don't know how much Mitchell Rails is in for, but if Mitch needs to come in after the fact with with more, it's possible. I'm sh- they can raise money. Sometimes it's easier to raise money after you own the team and take control of the team. Um, but that would be, you know, the one thing that I would understand people would be concerned with is everybody thinks DC new stadium. So important. I don't think it's as important personally as winning and the brand, but it's, it's certainly in the top three. Um, and Bezos would have been able to do it without, you know, any trouble. And maybe it's more of a challenge for Harris. The earnout thing is interesting. I'm sure that a lot of people listening know what that is, but for those who do not, uh, what exactly do you mean by earnout? Well, I mean, what I was told, you know, a, a, a while ago, and then it was reiterated to me early, early to mid this week, is that the price that the Harris Group, the, the, the bid is five point eight five billion. Snyder wants six, so they created kind of on the back end some sort of earnout where. They might pay Dan another $150 million or a little bit more than that if certain things happen in the business over the next couple of years, you know, beyond what was expected. I think that's essentially it. And it may tie into the sports book at FedEx Field or some of the real estate that they'll be acquiring uh, as part of the deal or maybe some of the real estate that they're not, you know, uh, acquiring as part of the deal. Um, but it, it's it was I mean, I. I I've been told so many times by people that are really close to the Harris bid that $5.85 billion was the number. And by the way, I don't think anybody was comfortable with that number. Um, but Dan wants it to look like six. You know, Tommy said this to me the other day. It's like, who cares about this? This is minutia. And I know $150 million and minutia in the same sentence is crazy. But it's like nobody cares. We just care that it got done that Harris is going to be the new owner, which I think will be the case um, unless something happens here in this non-exclusive negotiating period, which I can't imagine is very long because you're not going to, if you're the Harris group, you know, leave this thing tied up so that Dan can shop it for a few more days or a few more weeks. Any, uh, anyway, maybe a few more days, but um, all of that doesn't matter. Big picture is, you know, he is selling the team. Amazing. It is. So I take it that you are not putting a ton of stock into the Brian Davis $7 billion cash offer for the commanders. No. I mean, I don't know why. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, you know, denigrate any reporting, anybody else's reporting. I mean, if, for all, I mean, they might have something there, but if you Google Brian Davis, basically the only thing that comes up is Duke basketball and scamming people out of money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that somebody like that, A, could be a lead investor in a $7 billion deal, A. B, why would you offer $7 billion when the offer that's in is actually, you know, six or a little bit less than six? And then lastly, does anybody think that Brian Davis could get uh, vetted in a way in which the league would be comfortable with a guy that's been sued by many, many business partners um, and, and, and in the past, you know, along with Christian Leitner for, for a while. Um, so I don't know, maybe they, maybe um, uh, 
uh, Darren uh, Haynes, I think, was the, the guy that reported it from Channel 9. I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. I don't know if anybody else has. I know the Junkies had it a few weeks ago. Maybe maybe they're on to something that nobody else is on to, but that would be a stunner for me if it were true. We're discussing the sale of the Commanders with Kevin Sheehan, the host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. Uh, the Amazon founder, Jeff Bezos. It was last Wednesday afternoon that we had the reports that Bezos was not bidding on the Commanders. What do you think ultimately was the truth about Bezos's interest in buying the Commanders and involvement in the bidding on the team? I have no idea. I really don't. Like, I mean, you know, we went from Dan's excluding him from the process, that reporting, um, which, quite honestly, I believed at the time. I mean, we've all dealt with him for 24 years now. I mean, pettiness is one of the number one characteristics that have come to define, you know, Dan Snyder's uh, tenure uh, as an owner in the city. And so it was completely believable. And then when he wasn't getting the, you know, perceived six to seven billion dollar you know, offer and people weren't rushing to bid on this team and it people were, you know, getting a load of the financials and essentially saying we're not going to spend our time on this for this price. Um, then all of a sudden Bezos came back in as part of the thing. I don't know, Al. I really don't know. I don't I mean, Seattle purchasing the Seahawks is a better purchase. You've got a stadium and you've got a fan base and it's more his hometown than DC is. So maybe he's just waiting on that. Maybe it's that the league owners have a problem with, you know, a true business partner and one of their biggest business partners also owning a team. You know, maybe they don't want somebody that's, you know, exponentially uh, wealthier than all of it. Basically, everybody combined is. Um, I don't know what the, the reason for it is. Um, Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we won't. I mean, I don't know if you had this guy, Teddy Scheifler, on your show or not. I had him on a couple of times yeah. from Puck News. Did you have him on? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, he seemed pretty credible. Like, he seemed like, I mean, in addition to being a good guest, which is always the most important thing. So, I love when people say, man, that guy didn't know anything, She and I'm like, yeah, but he sounded great. Exactly. Didn't he? Didn't he sound convincing? <laughs> um, because really, at the end of the day, that's what you want. No, you want accuracy, of course. But uh, it sounds like he really did have some Bezos you know, sourcing. And I think he was the one that broke the information related to Bezos being out. The question is, how in was he? I don't know. And he doesn't seem to know that either. Scheifler, you know, yeah. he was interested, but how, how, you know, how, how deeply interested was he? I don't, I don't, I have no idea. I don't know what the answer to that is. It was the great mystery in this process of the sale. I had on the podcast, another Jeff Bezos guest, Brad Stone, who wrote two books about Jeff Bezos, knows him and Amazon and that whole story exceptionally well. He didn't know. Like Bezos, at least in this sale process, really did operate in secrecy. You know what? If he doesn't buy the Seahawks, then we know that it may have been the league didn't really want him as an owner. Yeah. So maybe that's when we find out more. If he buys the Seahawks, that might also also tell us that really that was his preference because Again, one of the things from early on, people that, that got a hold of the prospectus and looked at it and dropped out, you know, on that December 23rd expression of interest. And, you know, there was a reported a half dozen or more interested and capable parties, and most of them dropped out. And all of them, you know, pointed to, 
you're going to pay six billion dollars for the team, and then you got to come up with three billion more for a stadium, and then, unlike Denver and maybe Seattle to come, you've got to create a fan base again. Yeah. And I, you know, if I were selling it, I would just say, "Oh, the fan base will be there once Dan leaves." That would be your pitch from the sell side. Like you don't have to worry about that. They're all coming back, even though I, I like we talked about earlier. I think it's more complicated than that personally. But yeah, um, Washington. The, what's what's attractive about it is the market and the demographics of the market and the federal government and all of the companies, private companies that sell to the federal government and just the opportunity, if you do it and you do it right, how you know enormously lucrative it could become again. Um, but it's going to cost you to get there. With the name of the team, uh, we know that there's a period of time during which the team cannot change its name again, uh, the soonest that the team could have a new name again is 2025. Uh, that said, what do you think that the proper path with the name Commanders is for the Josh Harris group? Well, I'm not so convinced that they'd have to wait. I mean, I know the league rules, etc., but I think that there could be an exception made. I don't know. They're going to have to figure out. I mean, you know, you're going to have to get real people in that they'll, you know, trust in terms of branding and marketing and see whether or not the name they have right now is more helpful or more hurtful or, you know, neutral, um, whether, you know, what the future of it is, how, how beneficial it would be to drop it right away and just go to something like what I would prefer, which would be, you know, just using Washington as the brand branding people will tell you that's a terrible idea because you need a name and it's gotta be plural and it's gotta all of these different things. But I think this market's different because of the actual name that, you know, was here is gone. Um, and you know, that's, that would be my preference. Like if somebody asked me, I would say, pull this name immediately, pull the uniforms, go back to a team that looks like the team that was here for 80 something years. Um, you know, if you want to focus on, on a new name, I guess you can look at that, but for but I would just, I would use Washington um, and I would brand it around Washington and I would look at the soccer model where there are nicknames that evolve and develop around, you know, Barcelona and Man U and all of the, you know, uh, Premier League teams. And if we had Washington and we had the uniforms back, you know, people would call them the skins, they would call them the hogs, they would, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I would prefer. But I don't know that. I'm right about that because they may look at the landscape and say, people like Sheehan, they're either coming back or they're not coming back. And we can't give them Redskins, so it doesn't matter because that's gone. You can't put that horse back in the barn. And maybe the target for them will be what I always refer to as kind of like the independent fan or the independent voter. Like the person that's in their teens and their 20s and they've never been Washington football fans, but they love football and they're there for the taking right now. And maybe it's got to be, maybe Commanders works. Maybe the new uniforms work. Maybe there's a different name that would work. But maybe that's really their bit that should be their business plan is not to try to reacquire all the people that were lost but to try to target a whole new market because our city out is so much different it's so much younger than it was um and there are a lot of you know 
there's a generation and a half, or maybe just a generation, that's never known a football team that was worthy of following. And maybe that's, you know, those are the people they'll target. I think that's a really smart point. I believe this. Yes, there are former fans of the team who will not be back no matter what. But there also are plenty, maybe even many, maybe even a majority of former fans of the team who will be back if the team becomes good again, whether those fans think that they'll be back or not. I mean, in sports, as is the case in life, right? People vow many things, but (laughs) people don't always do or stand by those things. And I just have a hard time believing that in this NFL-obsessed culture, if the NFL team of the Washington, D.C. area gets really good again, that a lot of former fans of the team won't be fans again. You might be right. And I and I, I always think about it from my perspective because I think I can identify with the fans that really feel like, you know, this was a this was in their past and it's sad that it's gone but they have learned to live without it and to live without it being a significant part of their life and i don't know maybe you know they're they're competing for a super bowl next year or within a couple of years maybe you're right and that'll all change i have no idea i think that's that's the that's the fascinating part of what's to come is now winning is actually a possibility where it really wasn't on a sustained basis with such incompetent ownership and incompetent management. So um, we'll see. I purposely have not asked you a lot about Dan Snyder because I think that we all have Dan fatigue, but there may be great irony with this sale in that for all of the controversies and scandals and investigations What ultimately has compelled Dan to sell the team, of it having been said many times that he would never sell the team, uh, may just be a cash flow problem for him. And that, more than anything, is the driving force behind this sale. Uh, What do you view as the number one reason for Dan deciding to sell the team? I think there there's a tie for number one. I think it's what you said. Um, I think that they are, you know, that there were business reasons. I think there were family and personal reasons. I think you know he had finally come to realize after all of these years just how despised he was, not only in his own market but by you know every other owner in the league. I mean, they viewed him at one point as you know a significant earner and now he was at the he's in the bottom rung of earners i mean that is a hit to you know an ego i mean for a guy that expanded the stadium to ninety thousand and was charging for everything and people were paying whatever it was he was charging and they were always a big story in the off season and 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 now you know in recent years he's become literally one of the worst earners uh, in the league and I mean, I I don't, you know, we've all talked about this. The biggest, maybe the single biggest flaw was like this narcissistic inability to ever look in the mirror and say, oh my God, it's me. I have something to do with this, which he was never able to do. It was always somebody else's fault. Um, But I think up until a few years ago, I don't think he even realized. I think he was so off the grid with the fan base. And the only time he immersed himself in the fan base were these 
you know, Harvest Fest and draft day parties and <laughs> road game parties, which you and me and Doc and everybody always understood and always tried to tell them, this is not reflective. These people, it's the same people. Don't you, I mean, haven't you seen it's the same group of people that show up to these things? You're losing your fan base. It's eroding. And they never saw it. They never would even admit, even the people that were there would never admit that Dan was the problem. They thought we were out to get him, the whole thing. Um, but I think there has clearly been in recent years an understanding that, you know, the market's going to be really difficult to make work as long as he's there. And I think it finally, I think it took a toll on the family for many, many years and he ignored it perhaps but i think that you know that that was a part of it i think it's a lot of you know it's it's financial it's personal it's professional in terms of you know how he was viewed by other owners and by the commissioner and there was a lot of pressure i'm sure from all of them and jerry and everybody else dan it's just never going to work with you there but this guy was a fighter i mean the one thing that i would say about him he is more fight than flight he fought everything from the name to uh, all of these allegations, which I think a lot of them, you know, will ultimately prove to be not directly, you know, attributable to him. You know, I think that he felt like his reputation uh, as a, as a, as a, you know, as a person, like the whole toxic workplace, all the accusations, he, he's, he's the reason, I mean, he hired these people, he fostered that environment, but a lot of the personal um, allegations against him, I think he really felt like they were false and he wanted to fight him, whether it was Tiffany Johnston. Certainly, he had it out for Dwight Shar and the whole India media, you know, yeah. uh, campaign against him in, in, in July of 2020 with the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. And he probably has good reason to have been pissed off at a lot of that stuff. <laughs> it's funny hearing you reference Harvest Fest. The kicker to that has always been this. The name of the event actually is Harvest Feast. The reason that people say Harvest Fest is because that's what Bruce Allen called the event. The president of the team botched the name of the event. I just have always found that to be like a perfect snapshot of the team's dysfunction with Dan Snyder as owner. And this idea that, you know, the team's left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. You remember some of these conversations. It's like, guys, like, first of all, you know how they always felt we were out to get them the station and we, no, we want you to win. It would be better for us if you want to know, by the way, everybody that hosts a show on this station is either a lifelong fan born and raised or a former player. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they didn't see for a while the loss of fans and they would bathe themselves in these little events. And, you know, I've always felt, and I, I think we've talked about this before, but I th I've always felt that people who are fans of this team that lived here lost interest long before people who lived out of the market. And I think it's because you weren't living the day to day. And there's a certain flag flying thing when you live in a different city and it's like you want to represent, and I'm a Redskins fan, I'm a Wizards fan, and you, you, you stick with it longer. If you live in LA and you've been a Redskins fan your whole life, and if you live, you know, in Landover. Um, and so, uh, when they would go on the road, these parties, the, you know, for a road game, and they'd be like, we're just as popular as ever, bef ever before. But they saw the financials. They knew that it was 
dwindling. Um, but for whatever reason, I don't know that they ever were panicked by it. I think they just thought it had to do with the results. And it didn't have anything to do with the things that we would tell them it had to do with, which is you're unlikable. You don't treat people well. You're you embarrassed. Your behavior is embarrassing. The losing is number one. Don't don't get us wrong. But it's much more than that. And, you know, what what they told me in recent years was they lost more than anything what they really lost in, you know, half of the fan base that left or two thirds of it is they lost their highest revenue generating portion of their fan base. And that's what really hurt. You know, they, it's, 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 it's not good to lose the, the guy that's got a pair of tickets in the 400 level, but it's much more painful when you lose the guy that's got a company that was buying 20 club seats every year. And they lost all of those people. That's a great nugget. Uh, well, Kevin for years has had a line of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania should teach a class <laughs> about the downfall of the skin slash Washington football team slash commanders under Dan Snyder because such a class would be so instructive. Uh, Josh Harris actually went to Wharton, so hopefully he has taken that class. He went to Harvard Business School, too. He went to Wharton undergrad at Harvard Business School for grads. So maybe he can introduce the case study <laughs> on what not to do if you own an NFL team, because Dan certainly made his mark there. My good friend, Kevin Sheehan, host of the Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. Kevin, thanks a lot. All right, Al. All right. Always great to have Kevin on the show. New ownership for the Commanders, of course, is massive news. Uh, no podcast or show covers the Commanders like this podcast does. And so now is a great time to advertise on the podcast. Uh, we'd love to have you. Advertising your business or practice on the pod will grow your business or practice and make you more money and won't cost you that much. Uh, podcast advertising is affordable and most importantly, podcast advertising works. Email us. See what we can do for you. The email address is the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, it was last Thursday night that the Capitals' disappointing 2022-2023 season ended. It then was on Friday in the 5 p.m. hour that we learned that Peter Laviolette was out 
as Caps head coach. Boy, that did not take long. Uh, the Caps on Friday announced that the team and head coach Peter Laviolette had, quote, mutually agreed to part ways, end quote. Uh, Laviolette's contract as Caps head coach was set to expire on June 30th. Uh, the Caps <laughs> picked quite the time to announce that Peter Laviolette was out as head coach. They got such a kick out of this. The Caps made this announcement right around 5.15 p.m. Eastern on Friday. So this was a classic late Friday news dump. And the announcement came, of course, on the day after we had multiple reports of Dan Snyder having reached an agreement to sell the commanders to Josh Harris. So Washington, D.C. area sports fans weren't exactly locked in uh, on the caps at the time of this announcement. You talk about trying to bury (laughs) ugly news. Uh, This was it. So the Caps hired Peter Laviolette as head coach on September 15th, 2020. He ended up being their head coach for three seasons. The Caps made the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of Laviolette's first two seasons as Caps head coach, but they were eliminated in the first round in each postseason. Uh, The Caps this season missed the Stanley Cup playoffs for the first time in nine seasons. And the Caps, with Laviolette as head coach, got progressively worse in points percentage each regular season. However, The Caps in each of LaViolette's final two seasons as the team's head coach did get hit rather hard by injury. Peter LaViolette did not do a terrible job as Caps head coach, but he didn't do a great job. And the two first round postseason exits combined uh, with this season being a non-playoff season combined with the Caps not having done a particularly good job of developing younger players have LaViolette out as the team's head coach. I do believe this, however. The Caps this season did get hammered by injury. And had the team been healthier, it would have been better. And we might not be talking about LaViolette being out as head coach, but he is out. Uh, Saturday was breakdown day, a day of season-ending sessions with reporters for an NHL team shortly after the end of its season. Uh, A number of Caps players spoke. So too did Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan. Uh, This was McClellan on Saturday on the process by which Peter Laviolette ended up being out as Caps head coach. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we wanted, uh, or I personally wanted to get through, you know, um, you know, meetings with the players and coaches and, you know, kind of go back to Ted and Dick and, you know, make some decisions. But, uh, you know, ended up meeting with Lavi yesterday, Um, you know, had a conversation and, conversation went in a certain direction. We both decided that we'd make changes. And the Ted and Dick uh, to whom Brian McClellan referred are Caps owner Ted Leonsis and Caps president Dick Patrick. That was interesting from McClellan. Uh, He said that he met with Peter Laviolette on Friday and that, quote, the conversation went in a certain direction. We both decided that we'd make changes, end quote. Uh, exactly what was said in that conversation to take it in the direction of both guys deciding that LaViolette was done as Caps head coach. Uh, So what now for the Caps at head coach? Uh, The team's next head coach will be the team's fourth head coach in seven seasons. Uh, The Caps in recent years haven't exactly had extreme stability at the head coaching position, but Barry Trotz, Todd Reardon, and Peter LaViolette uh, are the Caps' last three head coaches. Uh, Candidates for Caps head coach, at least according to the media, uh, include guys who have never been NHL head coaches. Jeff Halpern, the former Caps center. Uh, He's currently an assistant coach for the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, has been an assistant coach for the Lightning 
since June 2018. Uh, the Lightning has won the Eastern Conference Championship each of the last three seasons and won back-to-back Stanley Cup titles in 2020 and 2021. Uh, Halpern has come up as a candidate for Cavs head coach. Spencer Carberry, uh, he's currently an assistant coach for the Toronto Maple Leafs, has been an assistant coach for the Leafs since July 2021. Uh, he was the head coach for the Caps AHL affiliate, the Hershey Bears, from June 2018 to July 2021. Uh, Carberry has come up as a candidate for Caps head coach. This is Brian McClellan on Saturday on if he's more open to hiring as Caps head coach, someone who has not previously been an NHL head coach, as opposed to the hiring process that led to hiring Peter Laviolette as Caps head coach. The idea with that process was to get someone who had been an NHL head coach. Yeah, I think I think we're more open. I think it's, you know, our group's changing. We got, we're trying to get younger. We brought in some younger players. Um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be different in that, you know, you want a coach that can work with young guys and you, we're going to have a veteran uh, group at the top that, you know, kind of needs a veteran coach. So it's going to be challenging to find the right guy for that. Probably a combination of, you know, what we've had um, would be the ideal candidate. I don't know that we can find it, but uh, we'll do the best we can. Yeah, the Caps are in a tricky spot trying to retool but not rebuild. Uh, trying to get younger but also be a playoff team, especially with winger Alex Ovechkin, still a very good player, and chasing Wayne Gretzky's NHL record for career regular season goals. Uh, here was some more from Brian McClellan on Saturday on the Caps' current predicament. Yeah, it's it's um, trying to stay competitive while getting younger is 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 is, is going to be challenging. Yes, um, but that's the stage we're at. That's the decision we've made here. Um, you know, we want to finish out a couple careers of important players in our organization and we want to stay competitive but we also want to get younger so it's 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 a challenging position to have all three of those things but we're going to try by the way i love the way that brian mcclellan and so many others in the nhl say the word organization organization not organization organization you know, we want to finish out a couple careers of important players in our organization. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, we know the deal with the Caps. They are very unlikely to engage in a full-fledged rebuild prior to Alex Ovechkin breaking Wayne Gretzky's NHL record for career regular season goals. And by the way, I do think that that is going to happen. Uh, but Ted Leonsis this past December told ESPN, quote, to me, a rebuild is when you look the players, the coaches, the fans in the eye and say, we're going to be really, really bad. And if we were really, really bad, I don't think Alex would break the record. End quote. Uh, this season was Ovechkin's age 37 season. And yet he, for the regular season, finished tied for ninth in the NHL in goals with 42 and finished 12th in the NHL in shots on goal at 294. Ovi still is producing at a high level. This was Brian McClellan on Saturday on Ovechkin's season, and then you'll hear multiple follow-up exchanges with Tom Galitti of NHL.com and Matthew Paris of the Washington Times. I thought he had a great year. Uh, I thought at the end, you know, all the stuff going on, I think, you know, from the break, the all-star break till... 
I mean, he had that where he was off. Then he had his family situation. I, I think it took him out of his rhythm to the year. And, you know, I think he was working hard to get it back. Uh, had some minor injury stuff that he played through. So I think for him, my perspective on him is that he was frustrated at the end. Do you, do you in a situation like this, when you're looking at the, what kind of coach you get, do you seek his opinion on stuff like, on, on stuff like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked in general about stuff. Um, yeah, I'm going to communicate with him. Um, you know, here, here's what we're thinking, and here's the strengths of the guy coming in. Here's where he might need help. We'll have those discussions. I guess how important is he, I guess, in, in stuff like this? I mean, he's a big part of your team. You know, he signed that five-year contract, and you know, expecting you guys to be competitive, I guess, so, this whole thing. Is he, how important is what? I mean, just his opinion about what's going on, or his view of what's going on. I don't know that it's an opinion. I mean, it's more of uh, keeping him informed of what the strategy is and what, what we're thinking, and are you, how do you feel about that? I don't know that he has, uh, um, you know, I like this guy over this guy. No, 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 yeah. Not like LeBron telling Mac. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> him being informed is just the important part of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think he deserves that respect. That we, I, you know, even trade deadline I gave him a heads up on what we were thinking and what might happen so I think we need to respect his status in the game and his status with the organization how much of this line that you're trying to balance between you and him is so that you guys stay competitive while he chases Gretzky's record well it's all of it you know I think it's you know we want to do what's best for him and at the same time do what's best for the organization And to me, Alex Ovechkin should be kept informed about what Brian McClellan is doing. Ovechkin shouldn't dictate what McClellan is doing, but there's nothing wrong with an all-time great in Ovi being kept up to date uh, on what McClellan is doing. Uh, McClellan on Saturday very much acknowledged that injuries played a massive role in the Caps' disappointing season. And that is true. The Caps this season got ravaged by injury. But the Caps this season also got disappointing seasons from some players, including center Evgeny Kuznetsov. What is going to happen with Kuzi? Uh, You know, Kuzi on Saturday, when asked to evaluate his season, gave a no comment. Uh, Brian McClellan on Saturday, when asked to evaluate Kuznetsov's season, did comment. Take a listen, McClellan, on what he makes of Kuznetsov's season. Uh, Probably disappointed in it. Um, You know, I think it wasn't as good as last year. Um, I liked his season last year. He played well. Um, you know, for whatever reason, he never quite found his game. I mean, there were stretches where I thought he played well, but overall, I think he um, underperformed the season he had last year. All right. So, Brian McClellan, pretty blunt about Evgeny Kuznetsov's season, and it was a disappointing season. Now, Kuznetsov for the 2022-2023 regular season did finish number one on the Caps in assists with 43, but he over 81 games totaled just 55 points. Kuznetsov in the 2021-2022 regular season over 79 games had 78 points, and Kuzi for the 2022-2023 regular season finished dead last on the Caps in plus-minus rating at minus 26. Match TV of Russia on March 25th reported that Kuznetsov via his agent had requested to be traded. uh, And the request per the report was not new as Kuznetsov had previously asked 
to be traded. Uh, additionally, Caps insider Tarek El-Bashir of The Athletic, uh, he in a mailbag column that came out on March 21st wrote that, quote, Caps decision makers are disappointed in Kuznetsov's season, end quote, and that, quote, trust is broken, end quote, between the Caps and Kuznetsov. Now, in fairness, Tol Kuzi, uh, he on March 27th did deny that he had asked to be traded, but as we learned with the Evgeny Kuznetsov cocaine controversy in August and September 2019. Uh, Kuzi is not above telling a fib <laughs> or two. Uh, the Caps in July 2017 resigned Kuznetsov to an eight-year, $62.4 million contract. We all know the deal with Kuzi. He is immensely talented. He, at times, has been extremely productive, but he also has been an inconsistent player. Uh, this season was his age 30 season. Trading him this offseason would be trading him at a relatively low value point. You'd like to think that Evgeny Kuznetsov still can be a great player for the Caps, but he certainly did not have a great season, and uh, there may well be tension between him and the organization, between Kuzi and the organization, as Brian McClellan says. Do what's best for the organization. Yes, thank you, Brian. Uh, One more thing from McClellan on Saturday. He at least to me, sounded like he wants or at least expects center Nicholas Backstrom to retire. Uh, Backstrom missed the first 42 games of the Caps regular season due to left hip resurfacing surgery that he underwent in Belgium last June 17th. Uh, This season was Backstrom's age 35 season. The Caps in January 2020 re-signed Backstrom to a five-year, $46 million contract extension. Uh, He has had problems with the left hip for years, that he came back at all this regular season was a win. But Backstrom, over 39 games, had just seven goals and 14 assists. And he finished next to last on the Caps in plus-minus rating at minus 25. Take a listen to this portion of Brian McClellan's session with reporters on Saturday. He did not at all sound optimistic on Nicholas Backstrom. Here you go. Yeah, I mean, I don't... It's... That's a major surgery. Um, I think it's, you know, it's frustrating in that I don't know that it, it gets. How much better does it get? Right. Um, because I don't, I haven't seen any other players do it and sure. recover and get back to the level that they thought they were at before. Um, so it's, I mean, I don't know where that ends up with the off-season training, but it's, um, you know, I mean, he's going to have to make a decision on his career where he thinks he's at. Yeah. He, he said he felt like as he went on, he was feeling better and better. Did you see him from his Um, Yeah, I, I mean, marginally, yes. Um, I just think it's a tough thing to get through. I don't, I don't, uh, we don't have experience on observing players that have done it, and I don't know what it what it could happen in an off season to make it significantly better. So, it, just so I'm clear here, I mean, is this one of those things where he'll come to camp, you'll kind of see where where you know where he's at. And well, I'm going to have a meeting with him and discuss. You know, how are you feeling physically? What do yeah. you think improvements? We'll talk to our strength guys, and right. we'll make decisions based on that. Yeah, you tell me, did Brian McClellan right there sound optimistic, sound bullish about Nicholas Backstrom? Uh, We may well have seen Backstrom's final game as a capital. The Caps' top two centers for years were Nicholas Backstrom and Evgeny Kuznetsov. 
Uh, but each guy may have played his final game as a cap. Well, it was last week that former Redskins head coach Steve Spurrier was in town. Yeah, the old ball coach. Uh, He last Thursday evening attended the D.C. Touchdown Club's awards dinner at Congressional Country Club in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, Steve Spurrier, in his final press conference as Skins head coach, famously said that the Skins in the 2003 regular season went 5-11. and Not very good. Okay, we wound up 5-11. and Not very good. Yeah, there you go. 5-11, not very good. Well, the Nationals in their 2023 regular season now are 5-11. and 11. Uh, They, over the weekend, lost two or three games against the Cleveland Guardians at Nationals Park. Uh, Friday night, a 4-3 loss. Saturday evening, a 6-4 loss in a rain-delayed game. But Sunday afternoon, a 7-6 win in a game in which the Nats overcame a 6-3 seventh-inning deficit. Yes. As that's manager, Davey Martinez likes to say, the boys battled. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, thank you, Davey. Uh, the win on Sunday afternoon was a wild win for the Nats. Uh, the Nats, who so far this season had been really bad at scoring runs in the latter portions of games, overcame that 6-3 seventh inning deficit. The Nats, for the game, totaled seven runs, 13 hits, and three walks. And the Nats ended up having a bunch of heroes. Uh, Jamer Candelario, he on Sunday afternoon had a big game to cap a big series. So he was the Nats' starting third baseman at number four batter in all three games in the series. Candelario on Sunday afternoon, four for five with a leadoff homer, an RBI single, and two other singles. So he did commit a costly missed catch error in the Guardians' four-run third. But Candelario, over the three games in this series, seven for 14 with a home run, two doubles, and four singles. Uh, Luis Garcia, he was the Nats' starting second baseman at number five batter at all three games in the series. Garcia on Sunday afternoon, one for four, but the one was a two-run homer and off a lefty. Uh, Garcia traditionally has struggled against lefties, but Garcia in an ads two-run seventh, a two-out, two-run homer to right field off lefty reliever Tim Heron to cut the Nats deficit to 6-5, despite having been down at the count at 1.12. The homer went a projected 430 feet per stat cast. Uh, Garcia on Friday night got on base four times. He went two for two with a solo homer, a single, and two walks. And Garcia on Saturday evening, two for four with two singles. Uh, Lane Thomas on Sunday afternoon. He was an Nats starting right fielder and number one batter. He went two for four with an RBI double, another double, and an RBI sack fly. Uh, Thomas in an Nats one run first, a leadoff double to left field. Thomas in an Nats one run second, a two out opposite field RBI double to the right center field gap for a two nothing Nats lead. And Thomas in the Nats two run eighth, a one out RBI sack fly to tie the game at six and scoring on the play was Stone Garrett, who initially was ruled out, but Davey Martinez successfully and astutely challenged the play, and it was ruled that Guardians catcher Mike Zanino illegally blocked the plate. Uh, I mentioned Stone Garrett. He had not played in a single game since his big weekend the previous weekend. So Stone Garrett, uh, the Nats signed him as a free agent this past November. Uh, He didn't even make the Nats' regular season opening Major League roster. The Nats on April 2nd recalled Garrett from AAA Rochester as the corresponding roster move to placing outfielder Corey Dickerson on the 10-day injured list with a left calf strain. Uh, Garrett over the Nats' final two games of a four-game split at the Colorado Rockies, April 6th through the 10th, went a combined 6-for-10 
with a three-run homer, two doubles, a two-run single, and two other singles. But he had not played in a single game since until Sunday afternoon. Uh, Garrett was the Nats starting left fielder and number seven batter, and he went two for four with a double and a single. And Joey Manessis, so he still has not hit a single home run in this regular season, but he did have two hits in each of the final two games of this series. Uh, All of the hits were singles, but uh, he was the Nats starting DH and number three batter in all three games in the series. Manessis on Sunday afternoon, two for five with a big tie-breaking RBI single and another single. Uh, Manessis in that Nats two-run eighth, a two-out first pitch opposite field RBI single into right field for a 7-6 Nats lead. So a lot of key hits and moments for the Nats offensively in the team's win on Sunday afternoon. There was more to the craziness for the Nats on Sunday afternoon than just the craziness with the team's offense. Patrick Corbin actually gave the Nats a halfway decent start. Yeah, imagine that. Uh, Four runs in six innings, but only two of the four runs were earned. Uh, He only gave up five hits, three doubles and two singles. He had four strikeouts versus no walks. He threw a good number of strikes, 94 pitches, 61 strikes versus 33 balls. Uh, He did commit a throwing error. Uh, All four of the runs off Corbin came in the top of the third in which he gave up three doubles and a single. Uh, One of the doubles, by the way, a two-out full-count RBI double by ex-Nat Josh Bell to left field for a 4-2 Guardians lead. Uh, Bell, by the way, had a big series despite having been struggling big time coming into the series. But Corbin in that Guardians four-run third also got failed by his defense, resulting in only two of the four runs being earned. Uh, Mike Zanino had a leadoff double to the right center field gap on a high fly ball on which right fielder Lane Thomas came a long way and failed to make a sliding catch while center fielder Victor Robles, who seemed to have the easier path to the ball, uh, did not attempt to make the catch. Uh, shortstop C.J. Abrams with a runner on second committed a fielding error on a grounder by Miles Straw as the ball went off Abrams' glove and up into the air. And third baseman Jamer Candelario committed a catching error on an attempted pickoff throw from catcher K. Barrett Ruiz, allowing Miles Straw to score from third for a 3-2 Guardians lead. Uh, and then there was the Nats bullpen on Sunday afternoon. So the Nats bullpen had a mixed series. Sunday afternoon sort of captured that. Three Nats relievers combined to allow two runs in three innings, but also part of all of that, two key defensive plays in the top of the ninth. Uh, so Kyle Finnegan tossed a scoreless top of the ninth for the save. The first out of the inning came on a nice sliding forward catch by right fielder Lane Thomas on a first pitch fly ball off the bat of Mike Zanino. And the second out of the inning came on a tremendous running catch by left fielder Alex Call on a fly ball in foul territory as Call, who had been inserted into the game that inning for defensive purposes, ended up serving his purpose. Uh, he crashed into the sidewall while making the catch of a fly ball off the bat of Will Brennan. Uh, also for the Nats bullpen on Sunday afternoon, Mason Thompson, another good outing, a scoreless top of the eighth. Uh, Hobie Harris in the top of the seventh did allow two runs. So a lot to take in from this Nats win on Sunday afternoon, but the game did result in a win. Uh, this was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon. We've been playing with a lot of energy, you know, regardless of what the score dictates at the end of the game. These guys, they don't quit. They're playing hard, you know. Um, we got to limit our walks. You know, the walks, the walks are really killing us. Um, we got to understand we got to throw strikes, you know, and uh, keep battling. I mean, I'm seeing some really, really positive things. Yeah, the Nats. Uh, two other starting pitchers in the series were Trevor Williams and Chad Cool. Uh, Williams was pretty good. Uh, cool was not so good. Uh, Williams in the four-three loss 
to the Guardians on Friday night was solid. One run in five innings. He gave up just four hits, two doubles and two singles. Did issue two walks and a hit by pitch. Only recorded two strikeouts. Uh, he, over his five innings, uh, also threw a lot of pitches, 95 pitches. But the only run charged to him came on a double play with him out of the game. And one of the doubles that he gave up was a leadoff full count ground rule double by Ahmed Rosario to conclude a 10-pitch plate appearance in that Guardians one run sixth on a ball that was misjudged by center fielder Victor Robles and then bounced over the wall. Oh, the play should have resulted in and out. You know, Robles did have some defensive issues in this series. I mentioned the Mike Zanito double on Sunday afternoon. Also, Robles in the 6-4 loss to the Guardians on Saturday evening had trouble playing Ahmed Rosario's one-out triple off the center field wall on a 1-2 pitch in a Guardians two-run fifth. Uh, the Nats' starting pitcher in that game on Saturday evening was uh, Chad Cool, but his performance was not cool. Uh, it actually was quite bad. Five runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up seven hits, a homer, a triple, a double, and four singles. He issued three walks. He recorded just two strikeouts. He, over his mere four and two-thirds innings, threw a whopping 96 pitches, just 52 strikes versus 44 balls. Cool in a Guardians two-run fifth gave up a one-out two-run homer by Jose Ramirez on a bomb to right field for a 5-4 Guardians lead. That homer went a projected 420 feet per stat cast. Uh, Cool's ERA over three starts this regular season is a not-so-cool 859. Uh, next up for the Nats, no game on Monday and then a two-game series against the Orioles at Nationals Park. Game one, Tuesday night at 7.05, a uh, starting pitching matchup of Josiah Gray versus Dean Kramer. Game two, Wednesday night at 7.05, a starting pitching matchup of Mackenzie Gore versus To Be Determined. Uh, as for how the O's did over the weekend... Yeah, the Orioles over the weekend, uh, they won two or three games at the Chicago White Sox. Friday night, a 6-3 win in a game in which the O's overcame a 3-0 seventh inning deficit. Saturday afternoon, a 7-6-10 inning loss. But Sunday, an 8-4 win in a rain-delayed game in which the O's overcame a 4-0 fourth inning deficit. As the O's, Joe Angel, were back in the win column. And the Orioles again in the win column. That's right, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's in what continues to be a crazy 2023 regular season for them uh, now are 9-7. and seven, And the O's continue to hit really well and continue to get very poor starting pitching. Uh, the O's, as we speak, for this regular season are number one in the majors in team on base percentage at 357, but also are 29th out of 30 major league teams in starting pitching ERA at 675. But yeah, uh, the Orioles offense has been really good. The O's in this series at the White Sox walked like crazy and leading the way was Adley Rutschman. So the O's over the three games in this series worked in astounding 26 walks. Think about that, 26 walks over three games. Uh, Adley Rutschman was the Orioles' number two batter in each game in the series. He was the team's starting catcher in games one and three in the starting DH in game two. He, over the three games in the series, went a combined two for 10 with a three-run double, a single, and seven walks. Uh, he, in the 6-3 win on Friday night, had a two-out bases-loaded opposite field three-run double to the left center field gap on an 0-2 pitch Aided Orioles four-run seventh inning. Uh, Cedric Mullins had a big series. Mullins was the Orioles' starting center fielder and number one batter 
in each game in the series. He, over the three games in the series, six for 11 with a triple, a double, four singles, six walks, and six RBI, and went two for two on stolen bases. Uh, Mullins on Sunday, three for five with a two-run triple and two RBI singles. Uh, Jorge Mateo had a big series. Uh, He was the Orioles starting shortstop in games two and three. Mateo over the three games in the series, six for eight with a homer, two doubles, three singles, two walks, and four RBI, and went one for two on stolen bases. Uh, Mateo on Sunday as the Orioles starting shortstop and number eight batter, two for three with a double, a single, and an RBI sack fly. And he went one for one on stolen bases. The O's for this regular season are 24 for 26 on stolen bases. Heck, even Anthony Santander homered in this series. Santander on Saturday afternoon as the Orioles starting right fielder at number four batter, two for five with a solo homer and a single. Uh, He, in an Orioles three-run sixth, had a leadoff homer to right field to tie the game at two. This was his first home run in this regular season. Now, Santander has been dealing with back soreness. But, you know, Anthony Santander in the 2022 regular season led the O's with 33 home runs. He had not homered at all in this regular season until his home run on Saturday afternoon. And then Santander on Sunday as the Orioles starting DH and number four batter, one for four with an RBI single. So maybe, hopefully, He's finally getting going, but, you know, even with Anthony Santander overall having been a disappointment, the Orioles still have been elite offensively so far in this regular season. But what really needs to get going for the O's is their starting pitching. Uh, The O's on Friday afternoon did announce that they had optioned their top starting pitching acquisition of this past offseason, Cole Urban, to AAA Norfolk. And then in this series at the White Sox. So Tyler Wells did give the O's their first outing from a starting pitcher of at least five innings in four games. So Wells in the 6-3 win on Friday night, three runs in five and a third innings. But then Kyle Gibson was not good for the first time in three starts. Uh, Gibson in that 7-6-10 inning loss on Saturday afternoon, four runs in five and a third innings. And then Grayson Rodriguez in his third major league regular season start got off to a horrible start, uh, but then was quite good. So Rodriguez in this 8-4 win on Sunday, four runs in five innings, but you got to dig deeper than the final line. All four of the runs that he allowed came at a bottom of the first at which he gave up two home runs, a single and two walks. Rodriguez, though, ended up retiring 13 of the final 16 batters he faced. And he, in the outing, had eight strikeouts versus two walks. And he threw a lot of strikes, uh, 93 pitches, 63 strikes versus just 30 balls. Uh, this was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday evening on Grayson Rodriguez, who, per MLB Pipeline, is the number five prospect in baseball. And you'll hear multiple exchanges here. I'm so happy with how he settled in. Um, you know, giving up four there in the first, I could have really unraveled on him. And I thought he did a great job, him and Allie both, making some adjustments after that first inning. I thought his changeup got really good. And, uh, you know, they, they were aggressive early on him in the first inning. And then he did a really good job of pitching after that. So uh, great learning experience. And for him to go five innings after that first inning was massive for us. When you look at that first inning, is, is some of that come down to looking at the second through the fifth right but (laughs) when you do some of that come down to you know rain delay difficult circumstances just with probably his warm-up and build-up was different no i don't think so i think it was just he wasn't real sharp early honestly and and that was uh you know just he knows that 
this is just their start in the big leagues and so tough conditions today no doubt for everybody and not the easiest day to pitch uh, it was cold wet and uh but it, no, I just thought he did a great job of battling and competing after that first inning. You mentioned his changeup. He got six of his eight strikeouts on that pitch. He yeah. was throwing it like 50% of the time the last inning or two. What did you see out of that pitch? How nice was it to see how good it was today? Yeah, well, we've seen that, I mean, in some past outings in spring training. Uh, lights out question. Um, <laughs> they, uh, it's a, you know, we've seen a plus, it's a plus pitch. And so I think he just got, had really good command of it. Um, and he re- recognized that they were aggressive with his fastball, so there was, he had that to go to to keep him off balance. Yeah, Grayson Rodriguez has been mixed over his three major league regular season starts, but like I said, number five prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Uh, the man who Grayrod replaced in the Orioles rotation, Kyle Bradish, could be back as soon as Wednesday. Uh, the O's on April 5th put Bradish on the 15-day injured list, retroactive to April 4th with a right foot contusion. So who knows? Uh, maybe the O's keep both Grayrod and Bradish in the rotation and go with a six-man rotation once Bradish is back. Uh, the Orioles' bullpen in winning two or three games at the White Sox was good, and thanks in large part to the Cano Show. Yes, I said the Cano Show, as in Yanir Cano. Who? What? Yeah, Yanir Cano. So Friday night, the 6-3 win, four Orioles relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Yanir Cano in that game, one and two-thirds perfect innings as he faced four batters and got five outs, including inducing an inning-ending 1-4-3 double play with runners on first and second, went out, and the O's nursing a 4-3 lead in the bottom of the seventh. Who is Yanir Cano? Well, the O's on Friday afternoon recalled Cano from AAA Norfolk. The O's got Cano from the Minnesota Twins in the trade of closer Jorge Lopez to the Twins last August 2nd, uh, what was 2022 MLB trade deadline day. And then in game two of this series at the White Sox, Saturday afternoon, the 7-6, 10-inning loss for the O's of five Orioles relievers combined to allow three runs, two earned in three and two-thirds innings. But Yanir Cano in that game, a perfect bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts. And he did that in facing the White Sox's numbers two through four batters. The Cano Show, quite the show over the first two games of this series at the White Sox. And then on Sunday, uh, the 8-4 win, three Orioles relievers combined for four scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Austin Voth, a much-needed good outing, a perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. And he did that in facing the White Sox's numbers two through four batters. Uh, Voth, the former national, had allowed a home run in each of his first five appearances in this regular season. So uh, if anyone needed a good outing in terms of Orioles relievers, Austin Voth was that person. Uh, And next up for the O's, of course, is Voth's former team, the Nats. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 552. We'll have plenty for you on the commanders and more. And I'll just leave it at that. I have some things in the works, so stay tuned. Uh, Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Do what's best for the organization.